voices It's up to you and me To shine a guiding light and lead the way United by our cause We have the power to pursue what we believe We'll achieve the realization of our dreams Hello and welcome to the special extended podcast episode of New Horizons. I'm Vaughan Benison. Thanks for your company. John Simpson, who is currently President of Blind Citizens Australia, in the recent Australia Day Honours List was awarded an AM for services to the blind and vision impaired community. In the regular episode of New Horizons this week, we heard an extract from my conversation with John. Here is now the full conversation. John Simpson, congratulations from all of us at Blind Citizens Australia on uh, your recent award. Thank you, Vaughan. This time we're just going to focus purely on you. So tell us about you and uh, particularly your early childhood and growing up. Gee, where to start? Um, I went to uh, primary school, Vaughan, at a... um, a specialised uh, school unit that was run by the education department in Victoria, which had the uh, quaint name, even at the time of the sight-saving grade, the philosophy being that those children with limited vision should be protected about overusing their vision because they'd wear it out. And, of course, we all know that exactly the opposite is the case, but the sight-saving grade, as it was called, was located within a... uh, a local primary school, and it was uh, equivalent to a small country school in that all of the children from 5 to 14, 15 were all educated in the one classroom setting. So the teacher, well, it was only a small group of perhaps 20 or so, uh, the teacher had the task of trying to set lessons and uh, bring the children on at their various uh, age levels and so forth, all within the one setting. Um, I went from that to a uh, local, my local high school, Oak Park High School in the northwest suburbs of, uh, uh, of Melbourne, uh, where I was one of the early children with a disability to be integrated into a uh, state government uh, secondary school. That was a fascinating experience and one that taught me a lot about um, self-advocacy, I guess, uh, because, of course, I didn't have the benefit of a visiting teacher. Uh, All of the innovations, all of the special needs, I had to negotiate or my parents negotiated for me. Uh, So we introduced things like uh, I used a typewriter in the classroom and, uh, uh, of course, uh, great consternation to the other children who saw it as a suitable distraction and complained about the noise it made when it suited their purpose. I had a colleague who actually wrote notes for me in a duplicate carbon book uh, and tore out the loose leaf pages and, and gave me those and he kept the, uh, the carbon copy. That system worked very well, Vaughan, in, uh, in year nine until the day that I was trying to do some study out in the schoolyard and all the loose leaf pages uh, uh, decided to take off in the wind across the schoolyard uh, with about 30 or 40 of the uh, school students chasing them down across the school guard. Oh, dear. Um, I used tape recorders uh, um, and and my parents were uh, a fantastic resource to me in in uh, pre-reading upper secondary school textbooks, history and and those sorts of things. 
um, but also school teachers who read for me and, uh, and fellow students and so forth. And this was in the days before uh, cassette recorders. So I lugged a Philips reel-to-reel machine back and forward to, uh, to school uh, along with my uh, Olivetti portable typewriter. Not every day. Uh, I'd left them there some days, but uh, it was a regular trip for me to be carting that stuff backwards and forwards to school. It's amazing to think about the uh, changes in technology and, you know, what kids have to carry around when they go to school these days compared with uh, what I had to carry around. And, of course, you were uh, a generation or two ahead of me and uh, there was so much uh, more heavy equipment in those days. Uh, you know, I had a, a nice big backpack and a, possibly a Perkins Brailler in one hand. But, uh, you know, people who went to uh, regular schools before me had a lot more than that. It's, it's quite amazing to think about how things have changed. Well, I'm talking about the nine. I'm seventy, you know, coming up to seventy-two now. So uh, we're talking about the nineteen uh, sixties uh, in the in the high school setting and a school of a thousand uh, children. Uh, so yes, it was quite a a feat to be carting that stuff, not only to and from school, but just getting through the crowded corridors and so forth. Mm. And you went on to university, didn't you? No, Vaughan. I finished uh, school at the end of. Uh, uh, what would now be called Year 12, uh, sixth form, we called it in those days, um, and uh, uh, tried to make my way in the workforce the, from there. I went back and did some studies a bit later on, but I didn't do study uh, tertiary study directly out of secondary school. My first employment was a holiday position over the, uh, uh, the summer holidays, which in those days were a bit longer than they were today. My mother worked for a uh, steel manufacturing company called Henderson Springworks in uh, North Melbourne in, in Victoria. And uh, we knew several members of the senior executive and so forth as a family. And I was given the opportunity to work in a factory uh, situation there, particularly in the stores area. And that was a terrific uh, uh, awakening of, of working in the, in the real workforce. I remember that uh, uh, one of the things that was complained about was that this young fellow is coming in and he's just doing too much work uh, because, of course, the, uh, uh, the regulars in the, in the factory were dependent on their overtime and uh, the fact that some young bloke was put in there and was uh, packing stuff up more quickly or whatever it might have been uh, than their usual routine was actually costing them overtime. Uh, so... The art of diplomacy in working in a uh, in a factory environment, I think, was one of my very early uh, lessons in in relating to other people as an as an adult. Mm. And and certainly, uh, Blind Citizens Australia and many other organisations uh, over the past forty years or so have uh, have seriously benefited from that. Your first uh, employment for you know the first few years it wasn't really anything to do with uh, blindness or vision impairment, was it? No, Vaughan. I went from this factory job, as I say, which was only a holiday job, and I actually worked in the area of um, overseas freight handling and and uh, what's called customs clearance. Um, in other words, dealing with imports coming into the country and arranging the documentation uh, for their clearance through the customs and tax systems. Uh, uh, I worked uh, for Ansett Airlines uh, in that capacity and then with a company called Yellow Express who were one of the major uh, customs agency companies working in the Melbourne uh, area, particularly on the waterfront and so forth. Uh, and I... Uh, 
developed some skills uh, there in terms of uh, of clerical work in in functioning in an office where there were expectations of other people that had to be met in terms of um, my job was in relation to dispatch and and preparing uh, uh, consignment notes for the shipment of, of goods after they had been cleared through customs. So there were other people dependent on me, which, uh, again, I think was a very good learning experience. But once again, we're talking prior to uh, any form of anti-discrimination law or any uh, workplace modifications or anything like that. Oh, yes, that. we're talking about the early 1970s here. Yeah. Mm. You did move on uh, a little bit later to work for the RVIB, which, of course, is now Vision Australia. Yes, I um, was fortunate to be involved in one of the major service club organisations called Australian JCs, originally known as Junior Chamber of Commerce. Uh, and I was a member of uh, the Essendon branch of that organisation from about 1967. Um, and that put me in contact with people at the uh, Royal Victorian Institute for the Blind. And we did a, a couple of community education projects and things like that to, uh, with the RVIB people. And I was invited to join the staff of RVIB in 1972 uh, in the public relations and fundraising area, particularly as special events uh, organiser. And in fact, I spent seven, uh, a little over seven fantastic years there uh, as the event organiser for Melbourne's Carols by Candlelight, uh, which of course is known to many people now through Channel 9. But in those days, all of the on-stage production and the supporting activities, the fundraising and so forth, was all managed through the RVIB. And, of course, the Carols by Candlelight always supports the uh, the work of the RVIB and now, of course, as I previously mentioned, Vision Australia. That would have been a really interesting thing to be involved in at that time. Uh, it, was a, it was a great uh, opportunity and it, it, it taught me uh, one of the things that uh, has stood me in good stead since, and that is it taught me to take advantage of the opportunities that you're presented with, uh, my first year, 1972, I worked uh, as the understudy to a fellow by the name of Jim Duncan, who would be known to many of our uh, longer-standing listeners. And uh, Jim took uh, ill. He had a heart attack on the 13th of December. And as the understudy, I was suddenly thrown into the role of organising Carols by Candlelight uh, for that year. Now, I'd been involved as a volunteer for about two or three years before that but really had no um, understanding uh, <laughs> of what lay between very early in the morning of the 13th of December and very late in the evening of the 24th of December. Uh, and uh, I think probably that was one of the major things that taught me about not only um, uh, organisation, but, uh, but advocacy in terms of making sure that uh, I got the best out of the staff team around me in terms of what I needed to get that job done. Having grown up, and uh, apart from uh, your primary school, uh, going to high school with regular sighted children and, uh, and then, of course, working in, I guess you might call it the sighted world, how did it feel to you to suddenly be working in a place with uh, other blind and vision impaired people? Um, I think I settled to that quite naturally, Vaughan, and in fact, probably it was a bigger jolt when I came back out of that environment. Um, in 1977, Jim Duncan uh, announced his retirement, 
and I had been his understudy and there was a sense that uh, uh, of expectation that I would take over that role and the, the board of the organisation at the time made another appointment um, which I found very hard to deal with uh, because of course so much of my life experience was wrapped up in that one organisation and uh, again that was one of the challenges in my life was to uh, move back from that and to pick up um, management level responsibilities in other not-for-profit organisations. And in fact, I went from the RVIB to the Australian Red Cross Society, uh, where I ended up as Deputy Director of their fundraising department. I then worked uh, for two of the major public hospitals in, in uh, Melbourne, Prince Henry's Hospital, <laughs> just at the time that uh, uh, the government decided to close that hospital, which made fundraising very interesting. Mm -hmm. And a fabulous few years as the Director of Public Relations with Mercy Maternity Hospital, uh, uh, which was run uh, uh, as a public hospital, but a very strong uh, influence of, of the uh, Catholic nuns. And of course, most people would know you uh, from your role probably as the Executive Officer, or I guess you could call it now CEO of uh, Blind Citizens Australia, which I think you joined in, what, 1986? Yes, after a, um, a stint of doing a consultancy uh, project for the Victorian Equal Opportunity Board where uh, uh, I was managed the promotion of the new disability aspects of their discrimination legislation. Um, I joined the uh, National Federation of Blind Citizens of Australia, as it was called in those days, as executive officer in, uh, what was it, April 1986. Mm. How was that organisation then compared with what it is now and, and particularly with regard to your role? Uh, well, the role was almost a sole employee role. Um, there were two uh, clerical uh, assistants who put in some part-time hours, uh, particularly around the semi-commercial fundraising activities that the organisation operated at the time. Uh, but all of the advocacy and uh, peer support, all of that work was either done by members on a voluntary basis or by me as the executive officer. And of course, Blind Citizens Australia or NFBCA at that time hadn't been around all that long in uh, 1986, about 11 years. About 11 years, that's right. I guess it would have been a much smaller organisation, particularly in terms of its profile within the community. Uh, very much so. I think the membership born at the time that I joined was somewhere between five and 600. Um, and there was a constant argument and pushback from both the blindness service organisations and from government departments and large corporations that we were seen as one of several uh, consumer-based organisations. Now, it is true that there were a couple of others operating, uh, but none of them were operating at a really national level and uh, uh, none of them had the even the limited infrastructure that we had at, at that stage. The only exception to that would have been in the New South Wales context where what we now uh, refer to as uh, Blind Citizens New South Wales or have until recently uh, was in operation. But uh, uh, we, there was a convenient excuse to say, oh, yes, but you're only one voice in the sector. Uh, and that was a very central part of the uh, uh, the advocacy that we had to push through at, at that time. Mm. 
Mm. And I guess even the service provider industry at that time was significantly different from it, what it is now, given that uh, even in Victoria there were three or four separate organisations that looked after the needs of uh, people who were blind or vision impaired. That, that's exactly right. Um, uh, three or four in, in, in Victoria, uh, the Royal Blind Society and a couple of others in New South Wales and, of course, in Queensland when we uh, started to... Uh, recruit members and establish a, a, an initial branch in Brisbane. I think there were something like 15 different service provision organisations in Queensland. Yeah, that's quite terrifying. I remember when I moved to Queensland, there were, I think I counted 22. Yeah, so, that's uh, right. And, Your and, memory is probably better than mine. And now there are far fewer than, uh, than that uh, in Queensland and far fewer across Australia, with Vision Australia being the main one, and there are a few others, of course, as well. And, and, and of course, Vision Australia it, it has encompassed, I think it's about seven of those uh, organisations if we take into uh, consideration organisations like Seeing Eye Dogs Australia as well as the RVIB and Association for the Blind, as it, as it was originally called in Victoria. Mm. What you've talked about the uh, the issues relating to service provision and the and the issues related to the organisations and the organisational politics. What were some of the main uh, work that you needed to do as part of um, NFBCA in terms of the community and in terms of advocacy for people who are blind or vision impaired? Well, there were two strings, um, and we might come back to this one, but there was a lot of work to do in terms of stabilising a funding basis and so forth. But putting that aside for a moment, um, there were substantial issues around the continuity of the uh, of the blind pension, those what we now call the uh, disability support pension blind and the age pension blind. Um, there was strong resistance to the continuation of the specific um, provisions that, that relate to those pensions, particularly among the bureaucracy uh, and, of course, also among uh, other peak organisations of people with disabilities. And a lot of our work was in terms of, um, if you like, shoring up the, the need for and the importance of, of, uh, of that pension. And the evidence was there because uh, even in those days, uh, the ability for a blind person to have employment and have the security of their pension as well meant that many more blind people, as a proportion of the population, many more blind people were in employment than people with other forms of disability. It had influence in terms of the... Uh, levels of remuneration that were available to people working in sheltered workshops. The blind people were much better off than, than other people. But of course, with those successes came the, uh, uh, the inevitable pushback and the argument by many uh, for the lowest common denominator that everyone should be on the, on an equal basis. And that equal basis was never going to be uh, the level of support that was available through the blind pension. Uh, it was going to be the uh, disability support pension uh, as, as it was means tested for other people with disabilities. Other areas, Vaughan, that uh, we were heavily involved in in those areas were very much around communications. Uh, uh, I remember a, a major campaign uh, <clears throat> when Telstra uh, or Telecom Australia, as it was called at the time, uh, decided that they were going to dispense with their free 
directory service, you know, the ability to ring as it was 013 in those days and uh, request the telephone number so you could dial it because there was no other access to the printed phone directory. Um, and we staged a major campaign to support uh, uh, the continuation of that, which Telecom Australia or Telstra uh, uh, eventually uh, agreed to with, uh, with pressure from the government. Um, communications was very important in the, in the late 19, uh, or throughout the late 1970s and into the, throughout the 80s. Uh, NFBCA as it was, was very much involved in advocacy for and, and the actual licensing process that saw the establishment of the Radio for the Print Handicap Network stations, with of course the station that you've been managing, Hobart being the first of those on air and then, uh, and then Melbourne and, and eventually the others across the country. Um, one of the things that set NFBCA aside from the other disability organisations was the fact that our mandate took us outside of the liaison just with the Department of Community Services and what we might call direct disability services. We had st developed strong relationships in the area of communications, in the area of um, uh, road safety, uh, pedestrian safety, those sorts of things uh, with various government departments. And, and of course, Vaughan, there was the work that we uh, led firstly in Victoria and then uh, more broadly for the introduction of audible traffic signals. And at one stage, um, BCA or NFBCA as it was then, was the referral point uh, uh, for um, all applications for um, audible traffic signals. And of course, later on, there was the standards work around uh, the tactile ground surface indicators and other mobility aids. And then of course, in the early 1990s, the very strong focus was on firstly the enactment of the Disability Discrimination Act and then its implementation. And uh, BCA and, and beyond BCA, I had a very heavy involvement uh, with promotion of the new legislation and its uh, integration and the development of standards. Uh, uh, beyond my time at, at, at BCA, uh, I undertook a number of consultancy projects to support the uh, enactment of the DDA. Mm. Now, you left BCA in around about uh, 1993 or 4? Yes, that's right. Yep. And uh, what did you go on to then? Well, I'd been heavily involved with uh, the Radio for the Print Handicapped uh, movement and I became, uh, on the one hand, the executive officer of what we later called RPH Australia. Um, and in parallel with that, I took on a project with... Uh, a coalition of the blindness service organisations, the Committee of Australian Blindness Agencies, which was one of the earliest steps towards the merger of the various blindness organisations. So I was involved with RPH Australia right through the remainder of the 90s. The uh, uh, Committee of Australian Blindness Agency project uh, uh, sort of stalled after about two years and I took on a number of other uh, consultancy projects, particularly around research uh, into the impact of the introduction of digital radio broadcasting and also the potential to use uh, digital television uh, as a uh, mechanism for the introduction of audio description on, on TV. 
And then in 1998, 99, I uh, uh, was asked to lead the work for Australia's hosting of the World Blind Union's General Assembly, which was held in Melbourne in November 2000. I bet you that was an amazing, uh, amazing thing to be involved with organising. Did you? Uh, apart from Carols by Candlelight, I think that uh, as as a uh, as an achievement, I think that's uh, that's the highlight of uh, of my rather long career. Paul. <laughs> did you when when you were asked to do that? Did you have to think about it, or were you uh, really keen to to undertake such a momentous uh, and huge event planning exercise? Oh, I think I might have fueled the fire a little bit, Vaughan. Um, I had the opportunity, uh, along with uh, with Christine, my wife, and, and other Australians, to attend the General Assembly in Toronto in 1996. And I remember having some discussions uh, with a number of the Australian delegation uh, at that time and, in fact, doing a little bit of uh, uh, background work about the venue and so forth that was being used in, in Toronto uh, with the idea of, uh, of promoting Australia's... Uh, uh, hosting for the year 2000 because the World Blind Union only meets once every four years. So that was the uh, the quadrennium that uh, that I was working in. Mm. Yeah, that that uh, was certainly an amazing meeting, and I, I wasn't able to attend. But uh, I've I've heard a lot of reports about how fascinating World Blind Union uh, get-togethers, if you want to call them that, or a general assemblies uh, can be. Sorry, just before you move on, I think that the other thing to say about that was that it had an amazing impact in Australia mm. because the uh, the hosting was a collaboration between the major blindness organisations. And there had been intense rivalry between most of the organisations uh, despite efforts to sort of move things on. Uh, but suddenly the middle management and, 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 uh, and other staff of these organisations were working together for a common purpose and I think that did actually a lot towards uh, the merger of those organisations, you know, which occurred only four years after that. Uh, and I think that actually helped set the, the stage for, for that work. Mm. Let's talk about your work with RPH Australia. That was uh, where I first met you as the executive officer of RPH Australia. Was radio something that was always important to you? Oh, very much, Vaughan, yes, uh, I mean, I enjoy television, um, but I guess um, right from uh, when I got involved with uh, NFBCA and started to understand the philosophy behind RPH as, as the organisation supported it then, um, I became very committed to, uh, to radio as a primary information source for people who are blind or have other print disabilities. And despite what's said these days about um, radio and its place in the information uh, uh, spectrum, uh, I still think that there's a, a primary need for radio services. That need's different than it was uh, when we argued about reading the daily newspapers so that people were on the same basis as the rest of the community. Um, but radio still provides... Uh, uh, what I think is the is the most flexible and timely uh, ability to translate information to people who are not necessarily technology savvy. And once you moved on from uh, organising the uh, the WBU, you moved into eye research. 
Well, not so much I research, although the setting was I research, but the Centre for I Research Australia um, included in its um, mix of services a very um, strong health promotion uh, unit, and we used that unit as the as the vehicle to deliver a lot of uh, community education. Yes, about the ability to prevent um, avoidable eye disease, uh, but we also were able to introduce into those programs, such as the Lions Eye Health program that I that I managed for about five years. Uh, we were also in, able to introduce the notion um, that prevention is one thing, but you've also got to have strong community understanding and support people who have a vision loss. You know, previously there was a bit of a tendency to to think of of prevention at all costs, and and you know, lack of prevention equaled failure. And we were able to turn that. Um, that thinking around both within the centre and with its partner organisations such as the Lions Clubs of Australia, we were able to turn that around so that people started to understand that there is a real uh, need to support people who are blind or vision impaired and to uh, conduct community education about their abilities and needs and so forth, uh, just as there is to do the prevention work. And that's the foundation on which Vision 2020 uh, Australia, of which I'm now actively involved, uh, undertakes its independence and participation uh, programs. And uh, your work with Vision Australia as uh, manager of audio description services, did you pioneer that or was that something Vision Australia had been involved in for some time? So Vision Australia and its predecessor organisations, particularly Vision Australia Foundation or the Association of the Blind as it was in, originally in Melbourne and Royal Blind Society, had used groups of volunteers to deliver audio description services for live theatre and places of public interest, museums and so on and so forth for some time. Uh, but those services were largely run in the name of the organisation, particularly after the merger, but without any um, high-level staff uh, oversight. There were some fantastic volunteers who led the services and, and who also uh, provided the services. Um, and Gerard Menses, the then CEO of Vision Australia in 2000 and whenever it was, <laughs> 2007, I think it was, or 2008 probably, um, said to me, we need to coordinate this. We need to have a standardised approach across Australia. And he asked me to come in and, and do a review and to look at national uh, consolidation of those services. Uh, that was a very interesting project uh, um, because, of course, some of the volunteers were a little bit resentful that uh, uh, that they that it might be implied that they needed management oversight. Uh, other people welcomed it, but the end result was that we did pull together uh, Vision Australia's audio description services that now, and and certainly at that time and since, have uh, functioned across the, uh, the three eastern states plus the ACT. Um, including places like Albury, Wodonga and, uh, and Geelong. Um, and, of course, alongside that direct service delivery, we were able to do a fair amount of work in advocating for audio description to be available uh, both on home delivery DVDs and also in the cinema area, 
we never quite got to the television industry at that stage, but uh, things have moved on since. Yeah, audio description is a fascinating thing. It's been around for a very long time, and it seems to uh, take a long time generally to uh, to get its foot in the door of any of the sectors in Australia for some strange reason. I think it's reason. one of those things that's, that unless you're actually directly exposed to it, either as a blind person or in the wider community, um, it takes a little bit to understand it and understand the value of it. Let's talk about some of your community involvement because it's uh, not all been about uh, working and earning money for you. You've been involved in quite a number of organisations at the board level over the years. <laughs> yes, um, as, a, uh, as a young um, uh, fundraiser working in the public health sector, I uh, was invited to join the board of an organisation called uh, the Deafblind Care Association in Victoria. That's the organisation that's now ABLE Australia and provides a, a, a range of services to people who are deafblind across the, the country. But it was a Victorian-based organisation there and I served on, on their board and as vice president. I also, shortly after joining the staff of NFBCA, um, put my name forward and was successful in being one of uh, three consumer representatives who was elected to the uh, the board of the RVIB and I served there for a number of years um, and, and a number of other uh, uh, involvements and most recently Vaughan uh, since I moved to Euroa in the northeastern part of Victoria I've served on the board of Euroa Health which is both a local uh, hospital and aged care facility here in the local community. And of course, as uh, as we all know, you've served for, uh, well, on a couple of occasions and uh, most recently as president, uh, but you've served on the board of uh, Blind Citizens Australia over the years. Yes, in between um, my, <laughs> or after my professional involvements, uh, up to 1994, I came back onto the board during the latter part of the 90s for a while. Um, and again, during the 2000s and most recently since 2015, uh, when I rejoined the board to uh, uh, to support, uh, uh, well, Greg Madsen was president at the time and then Emma Benison. Um, and then, of course, I took up the presidency uh, uh, in 2017. What's in your future, do you think? Are you going to sit down and relax and actually retire? Or you, do you think you'll just keep going? Um, I've made a very strong commitment to both my family and to the organisation that I won't re-stand for BCA president uh, uh, beyond this term, which ends at the AGM in around November 2021. Um, of course, I'll have a, a year or so as immediate past president there. Um, but I don't think it would be healthy for the organisation and certainly not for myself or my family to... Uh, to keep up the, the, the uh, presidency beyond that. Organisations need fresh blood and new ideas. And um, one of my main goals in this remaining time is, in fact, uh, around uh, BCA succession planning uh, processes to make sure that there's a president in place uh, beyond that. Um, for myself, um, I'll continue to have some community involvement. Um, and possibly do some specific project work for BCA. Um, but I'll be around the mid-70s by uh, by that stage born. So 
this silly old bloke does need to slow down after a while. <laughs> well, once again, congratulations on on your award. It's it's you've obviously had an amazing career and you've made an amazing difference to a lot of people in the community. What do you think that awards like this mean, not just for you, but uh, for the people that you've represented all of these years? Look, I think it's 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 a fantastic um, recognition of where BCA sits in the community now and what it has achieved. Um, obviously, awards like this are based on someone putting together some some history, uh, reflecting on the past, and that past is very much about the achievements of the of the organisation, just as much as it is about my own involvements in those achievements. So there's a real um, sense in which these awards are, are a reflection on the organisation, if not as much, perhaps even more so than they are on the individual. Um, and I think that's fantastic. And I, I want to take this opportunity to, uh, uh, to work with BCA to celebrate the award from that point of view, not from my own uh, point of view, but from the point of view that it's a recognition of how far BCA has come and most particularly how far it's come in the last five years. Um, and and um, it's something that we can build on as an organisation in terms of ensuring that we are seen in the broader community as the articulate and authoritative voice of people who are blind or vision impaired. John Simpson, AM, thanks once again for joining us on New Horizons. Thanks, Lorne. And that was this extended interview with John Simpson, AM, currently President of Blind Citizens Australia. If you'd like to get in touch with BCA, you can call 1-800-033-660, or you can email bca at bca.org.au. That's bca at bca.org.au. I'd be really interested to know if you like these extended podcast episodes and if you'd like to hear more of them. If you'd like to get in touch with me, contact new.horizons at bca.org.au. That's new.horizons at bca.org.au. Or just call the main BCA contact number and leave a message for me. I'm Vaughan Benison. Hope you've enjoyed your week. I'll talk to you again next week. We'll achieve the realisation of a dream. Of our dreams